But throughout the book of Acts, we've seen the people of God empowered by the Spirit of God to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Guess what? The church has been courageous. The church has been courageous. When we see the stories unfold in the book of Acts, the history that Luke writes, we see the courage of God's people. The the word courageous means not deterred by danger or pain. Not deterred by danger or pain. The word courageous is a tremendous word to use this morning for the in which God tells Paul take courage you see Paul has testified to the people and and what we saw last week he, he has been facing both danger and pain he encountered the crowd in Jerusalem He was being beaten by the crowd, and what does he want to do? He wants to testify some more. I want some more. I want to testify to what God has done in my life. And now he's going in front of the Jewish council. I believe the text of Scripture this morning in Acts chapter 23 wants to teach us something. And what it wants to teach us is this, trusting God. The promises of God gives you courage to testify to the work of Christ. Trusting in the promises of God gives you courage to testify to the work of Jesus Christ. Church, we we need to stand up. We need to be men and women of courage for our God dwells in us. What is a result? What is a result? Not the result, but a result of unswerving faith. What is the result of that? It is courage, boldness, strength, not worrying, not deterred by danger or pain. Courage to do the will of God in your life. Courage to reflect the image of God no matter the cost. We've seen ordinary people do extraordinary things for the kingdom of God. And every time we see that, these people are filled with the spirit of the living God. They knew that God was with them and as a result they were courageous in a dark world. And today we see the continuation of God's plan for Paul to testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ as he makes his way from Jerusalem to Rome. Let's look at Acts chapter 23. We'll read the first 11 verses together. If you'll stand in honor of reading God's word, Acts chapter 23, we'll read this together as we read God's word and the story of Acts from the account of Luke. And looking intently at the council, let's back up to 30, I'm sorry, let's go to 2230. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him. This is talking uh, uh, about the, 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 the Roman guards. 
And they unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes and Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or angel spoke to him? And when this dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn into pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him away from among them by force, and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Amen. You can be seated. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the encouragement in your word that we see Paul's life and that you come and stand next to him And encourage him by saying, take courage. You're not done here. Father, give us courage to not be done. Help us to be courageous men and women that live extraordinary lives for the sake of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of our members who was, uh, whose father was a pastor sent me this this week, and I, I thought it was good, so I'm going to share it with you. It's a story. It says this. The other day, a, a member of the pastoral relations committee in a certain church read a letter purporting to have come from an applicant. The letter read as follows. I have many qualifications, so this is a applicant writing this letter. I have many qualifications. I've been a preacher with much success. I've had some success as a writer. Some say I'm a good organizer. I've been a leader most places I've been. I'm over 50 years old. I have never preached in one place more than three years. In some places I have left town after my work has caused riots and disturbances. 
I must admit I've been in jail three or four times, but not because of any wrongdoing. My health, it's not that good, though I still get a great deal done. The churches I've preached in have been small, though located in several large cities. I've not gotten along too well with the religious leaders in towns where I've preached. In fact, some have threatened me and even attacked me physically. I'm not really that good at keeping records. I have been known to forget whom I have baptized. However, if you can use me, I shall do my best for you. After the reading the letter, the committee members looked at his fellow members and said, well, what do you think? Should we hire him? The others were aghast. Hire an unhealthy, troublemaking, absent-minded jailbird? Was the man who read the letter crazy? Who was the applicant anyway? Who would have the colossal nerve to apply to our church? Oh, said the man reading the letter, it's just signed, the Apostle Paul. (laughs) Some churches probably wouldn't hire the Apostle Paul as their pastor. Some people view our life as a mess, right? You may even view your own life as a mess. Not really knowing if we're making an impact. And yet there's one attribute that describes Paul's life as we read the book of Acts. It was courageous. One one could view Paul's life and put it, in a perspective that he was not super successful, and yet God views our lives differently than the world views our life. We read these scriptures, and we've read through the three missionary journeys, we're amazed at what God did through the Apostle Paul, and we wonder, can God use me like that? What is the purpose that I am actually here on this planet? What is God's design and direction for me? What's God's call for my life? God is calling you to something greater. Let me tell you what he is calling you to. Something greater than the American dream. He's calling to you to something greater than your 401k account the size of Texas. He's calling you to something much more than getting ready for your favorite TV show on a weekly basis. He's calling you into the battle. He's calling you to be a witness of Jesus Christ. And it's exciting. The Christian life is the most exciting life when it's lived for the glory of God. It is not dull. It is not boring. It is exciting. It is amazing. And it takes great courage to be a part of that. He is calling his church to be courageous witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter 22, we saw Paul beaten by the mob. He testifies who Christ is through his testimony, through his encounter with Christ and his baptism. 
Now the mob responds at the end of chapter 22 by throwing things at him, shouting, away with such a fellow upon the earth. Basically the same that they shouted for Jesus. Kill him. Barabbas is who we want. Now the soldiers take him into the barracks and they're like, well, we don't understand why this mob is trying to kill this man. We'll just beat it out of Paul. And so they string him up to beat him. And as they're about to flog him, he says, is it lawful to you to flog a man whom is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Immediately they stop in their tracks. They realize he's a Roman citizen. They're about to beat him without a charge. And so they take him back to the council. This tribune or this commander of a thousand men whom whom we, we see later in the letter, his name is Claudius Lysias. And he takes him to the chief priests and the council. And this is what happens in verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him and struck him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you You whitewashed wall, are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. I think this is our first point this morning, is thus, admissions of one's mistakes is courageous. Admission of one's mistakes is and takes courage. Paul shows courage in the midst of the congregation by sharing his mistake, his sin. Such an interesting passage here. Paul begins this speech by calling them brothers. He uses the term brothers instead of rulers and elders. He's one of them, not considered above them. He was in their council. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He understands their mindset. He is one of them, and he's appealing to them from a peer relationship. Brothers, trying to get on their good side, maybe even. I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. What a statement. I've lived my life in all good conscience up to this day. Basically saying, Brothers, if you're fighting me, you're actually fighting against God. A clear conscience, knowing that you have lived for the glory of God, is a beautiful thing. The Apostle Paul was by no means perfect, but his heart was right before the Lord. Let me ask you this. What is the opposite of a good conscience? 
it would be a bad conscience, right? <laughs> Pretty easy. Rob, thanks for, for making it hard for you. Knowing that you have done wrong, a guilty conscience. God has given a, a conscience to every human being, but it's possible for one's conscience to be damaged, dysfunctional, or even destroyed. God talks about the conscience in, according to his word. The conscience is defined as that part of a human psyche that introduce, induces mental anguish and feelings of guilt when we violate our conscience. And feelings of pleasure and well-being when our actions, thoughts, and words are in conformity with our value system. All right? So that's what a conscience does. It tells you when you're out of line. And if you have a clear conscience or a good conscience, that you are in line with your value system. If you have a bad conscience or a guilty conscience, you are out of line with your own value system. Hebrews 10.22 says this about the conscience. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, what happens is we enter, Jesus enters into the Holy of Holies for us. The great high priest, there's, there's some... There's so much wording in here. There's so much imagery here. But the, the great high priest enters into the place where God dwells and he sprinkles the blood. And he washes us to make us clean before God so that we can enter into his presence so that we do not die because of our sin or our guilt or our shame or our evil conscience. And thus, we have a clear conscience before God, not because of our works, but because of what Christ has done upon the cross. It is the gospel. And Paul is telling his brothers here, I have a clean conscience. I have a good conscience. Christ actually is the one who gives us a clean conscience for, before the Lord. And when we line up God's values with our values, we have a right understanding of who we are in Christ. Paul is proclaiming here that my standing according to God's word is right because my value system is not based upon your value system, but upon God's word. 1 Timothy 4.2, to keep talking about this conscience idea, 1 Timothy 4.2 says people's consciences can be seared, literally cauterized or burnt to where they feel nothing when they commit evil. This is where people commit evil actions and actually fear, feel and fear nothing. Their value system has gone so far from how they were created in the image of God that their consciences are actually seared. This is devastating for people who are trying to hear 
the gospel. Why? Because their heart is hardened that they are actually a sinner in the hands of a, of a righteous and holy God. They don't see a need for repentance and faith upon Christ. MacArthur, John MacArthur says, a seared conscience is someone so covered with scar tissue from habitual sin that it no longer responds to the proddings of divine truth. We may think that our small sins mean nothing. But let me tell you, it affects not only the body of Christ in this room, but it also affects your heart because continually sowing the seed of sin and habitual sin in your life will seal your ability to understand and repent of your sin and confess your sin to bring healing to your soul. So Paul says, my conscience is clear, and he lets the council know, and the chief priest know, and Ananias, the chief priest, has Paul struck in the mouth. Probably not. Um, the best thing for Paul. But this, Luke points this out, and I believe he points this out to refer back to that Jesus, when he was testifying to the high priest, the high priest had him struck in the mouth as well. But Jesus is, is better than Paul, right? Jesus is greater than Paul. Look at Paul's retaliation. You guys laughed when I read this. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed walls. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck? This is what it says in Peter about Jesus when the council and the high priest are questioning and testifying, declaring false things at Jesus. 1 Peter 2.21 says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, speaking of Christ. But Paul does, right? Paul was not perfect. He sees the hypocrisy of this evil high priest, and this, evil, and this high priest was an evil man. He's quoting from the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 13 
in saying that they are whitewashed walls. Ezekiel prophesies that these whitewashed walls were the religious leaders who were awaiting the judgment of God. And sure enough, Ananias would, would succumb to the judgment of God as 10 years later he would be killed. But look at Paul's response, and this is what I want to focus on. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? He is... He has some new information. This man is is the one who goes into the inner place where God dwells in Leviticus 16. And he, he goes into that place and makes atonement for God's people. This man is to be respected from a Jewish heritage. And Paul says, I did not know, brothers, that this was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He admits his error immediately. This is is really interesting to me. And I, and I find this in my own children. Sometimes I see my own sin in my own children. And, and it's so hard to say the words, I messed up, right? But we, would, we would, sometimes we would rather lie than say that we messed up to, to make our image look better. Sometimes we will cover up our shame, right? Like Just like in the garden, they tried to cover their shame with fig leaves. Of our own sin, it, rather than confessing that to one another and to the Lord, I messed up. And Paul does this in the council. Christian life is all about submission. It takes a lot of humility to admit that you messed up. When we were saved, we admitted that we were sinners, unclean, unable to enter into the presence of a holy God. We admitted that our need for the sacrifice of Christ, and we placed our faith in the one who would take our place, And wash us so the presence of God could dwell within us in his spirit. And now, daily, we need to continue to confess that our need for the Lord, our need in prayer for God, our need for his word and the truth of his word and reading the scriptures, the omission of sin in James chapter 5 begins the healing process. Even for the saints. Paul does not wait. And he cites Exodus twenty two twenty eight, which says this. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. 
See, Paul doesn't want the wrath that is deserved to come upon the high priest to instead come upon him. So he confesses his sin immediately. Sin is, sin is a wicked thing. And once, it's, once it comes into a group, it multiplies. One person's sin causes the other one to sin. If Paul was not struck by the high priest, he would not have reviled the high priest. At some point, there has to be an end to the sin. Someone has to confess and say, nope, I messed up in the holy and righteousness of God and his presence, and I need his presence and the holiness and righteousness of God. Another thing is, we we should know God's word enough that we see our sin for what it is. We understand what is an affront to God. We understand what God hates. We should know the character and nature of God. Numbers 32, 23 says this, Be sure your sin will find you out. The lack of confession of sin will rot your bones. Will you fear the Lord more than you will man? Courage to confess is imperative in the kingdom of God. Now, Paul has confessed that he has messed up. And now when Paul perceives his group, who he's talking to, he realizes this may not go very well. And he perceives two different audiences, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, who believe two very different things. And so he sees a weakness in the council. And while still testifying to Christ, he gets them to turn on one another. He says, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And they turn on one another. One believes in the hope of the resurrection. One does not. And they turn on that issue. So much so that they have to rescue him from being torn into pieces and take him back to the barracks. Maybe from the outside it may look like, man, this hasn't been a good day of sharing the gospel. Got struck in the mouth with my opening comment. Then I realized they weren't really going to listen, so I gave them a bit to chew on among themselves. May have been a downer for Paul. Paul had come all the way back to Jerusalem knowing what he's going to face, and this is what he gets. He testified to the people, his testimony. At least he got to share his testimony before they tried to kill him, and now he's before the religious leaders, and he's testifying again, but doesn't really get a chance. It may have been a downer for Paul. I know when I talk to people, I fully expect them to come to Jesus. 
And when they don't repent and turn their hearts to God, sometimes I get a little bit disappointed as well. So Paul may have been a bit disappointed as he goes back into his barracks and going, I'm not sure, Lord, what's next for me? And the Lord comes to him the following night. Verse 11, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This is our point number two this morning. It's thus testifying to who Christ is among the nations is courageous. Testifying to who Christ is among the nations is courageous. God's encouragement to Paul, take courage. Take courage, church. May those words rest over your soul this morning. Take courage. I know it's been a difficult year. Year and a half. Two years, 30 years, lifetime. Some in this room, 96 years. And, and the encouragement to Paul from the Lord is the encouragement from the Lord to you this morning. Take courage. Paul has been beaten, he's been bruised. People aren't listening. Have you ever felt that way? No one is listening. Maybe, maybe my testimony isn't making a difference. Yet God has a plan for Paul. And he said, according to his word, that he has a plan for you. It may be in the midst of your suffering. It may be in the midst of loss. It may be in the midst of getting beat up by the world. Yet God has something greater in mind for you than you could ever imagine. The Lord says to Paul, you will go and testify in Rome. This is a promise to Paul. This is why next week when Paul is getting bit by a poisonous snake on his way to Rome, and the natives are like, is he going to die? He just pulls it off, throws it on, and keeps sharing the gospel. And they're like, well, who is this guy? God said, I'm going to testify in Rome. I'm not going to be on this island right here, and, and this snake's going to bite me. I'm not, I'm not worried about that. There's, there's a shipwreck and the storm is coming and the ship's going to get wrecked. But you know what? I'm going to Rome. You guys are with me. It's not going to be a big deal. Why? Because God has said according to his word that I will testify in Rome. That's why Paul has confidence. That's why he has courage. Because God has promised it. This is how we ought to live as Christians. Knowing God's promises are true. That courage oozes out of our being because we are confident in God's word. What he has said according to his word. And nothing phases us. Take courage, man and woman. 
of Christ. Take courage that this world is not your home. Take courage to lead your family well. Take courage to not be overwhelmed by the things and the pleasures of this world. Take courage not to believe the lie that you're not making a difference in the kingdom of God. God's people testify to who Jesus is by living according to his word and proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Don't stop because it's hard. Don't stop because you, you got bit by a snake. Don't stop because you haven't seen the fruit lately. Pursue Christ and watch the Lord work in your life. Take courage. What is what is the Lord promised as far as the nations go? He's promised 24 Matthew 24:14 and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Guess what? The gospel is going to the nations with or without me. The gospel is going to the nations with or without you. Why? Because God has promised it. And what does God say about when we go to the nations to make disciples? He says Christ will be with you even to the end of the age. So just as the Lord stood by Paul, the Lord stands by you when you go to the nations. But that takes courage. That takes courage to go across the street. It takes courage to share the gospel with your coworker. It takes courage to lead your family in Christ, men. It takes courage to say, you know what? God has called me to something greater. I'm going to go to the nations. It takes courage. Isaiah 45, 23 says this, By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked before me. Every knee will bow by me. Every tongue will swear. Philippians talks about that. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you. Talking to Abraham, whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. God's taking the nations, the gospel to the nations through Paul, but he's also taking the gospel to the nations through you. The nations are represented by Rome, and God is placing his man to the Gentile into Rome and boy what a good work he's going to do next week we're going to talk about all the work that he did while he was in Rome but God is fulfilling his purposes and his plan in and through you he will use his church take courage church take courage verse 12 when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat 
nor drink till they had killed Paul. Interesting, they, they take an oath. We're not going to eat or drink, kind of like some of these guys with the mustaches on in this room. They're, they're a little bit uh, over, overwhelmed here with uh, what's going on, but they, they take this oath. They're not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. What they don't know is God has other plans, right? So what happens is Paul's sister's son, so Paul's nephew, a young man, hears this, and he goes to tell Paul. Paul says, go and tell the tribune. So he goes to tell the soldier. They're going to tell you to bring Paul to the council, but on the way... They're going to ambush you and kill Paul. So verse 23, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. This is our third point this morning. God is interacting. He's working behind the scenes for his purposes. And so we must trust the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is courageous. Trusting in the sovereignty of God is courageous. Let me get it right, right? Trusting in the sovereignty of God is courageous. You see, the sovereign plan of God is working even when we cannot see it. There are small acts of obedience in this section in which we must highlight. We see fulfilled the promise of God that Paul is going to go to Rome. We have a young boy coming to a centurion. He's coming to this soldier saying this is what's going to happen. The soldier believes the young boy. Can you imagine this story unfolding? The The young boy goes to this soldier and the soldier believes the young boy and says, we're going to take an army to take Paul to Caesarea. God is working. And I think Luke wants to pull this out so that that we see God is working and moving in ways that we cannot see nor do we know. Proverbs 16, 9 says this, The heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. The courageous life is a spirit-filled life. It's trusting God and his promises. It's trusting that he is working even when we don't see he is working. The courageous life is the spirit-filled life. It's better than the world's way. It is the more exciting way. You see, God's plan for you is to be an image bearer to the nations. Representative, an ambassador of the gospel to the nations. That's why you were created. God created you in his image to reflect the glory and the goodness and the grace of God. And he has declared that this has got to go to the nations. It is the way. 
Have you admitted your sin before a holy God and allowed him to wash you clean to be a vessel useful for the kingdom? Have you submitted to God's plan for you to be a witness to the nations for Christ? Do you trust that God is working to accomplish his plan in and through you? Take courage, church. Those words take courage. God is working. He has a plan for your life. He will accomplish his purposes for those who are called according to his purposes. He's working for their good. Take courage. I'm going to leave you with what Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 16. Jesus said in verse 31, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, take courage. I have overcome the world. I believe that's what the Lord wanted to speak to us this morning about this courageous spirit of the living God. No matter what age, no matter what place we are in life, to turn to the living and righteous God and say, Lord, what do you have for me? I'm yours I'm willing to do whatever it takes and allowing him to speak according to his word and his truth in your life to respond in obedience to that. Let's be a church that is courageous. Father, we thank you for...